All right, we'll go ahead and start today with the 84th Psalm. To the chief musician on an instrument of Gat, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself when she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Selah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of Baca. They make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for this wonderfully beautiful morning. And uh, thank you that it's warming up quickly. And uh, I ask that you bless each person that's here this morning. Take good care of them. And uh, uh, may the words today of this sermon be pleasing to you. And uh, may it be edifying to them. And may you be glorified through it. And uh, help us to always handle your word rightly and to not deviate from its precepts, but to search it out to find the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, on each and every page. We love you. We praise you. We look forward to this day and we look forward to the week ahead. And we thank you for the week behind us. We want to give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor that you alone are due. And this prayer is made in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. All right, just a few uh, announcements today. Um, as I say every week, I'm always looking for inviters of others. And uh, with the uh, admonition to remind them that the uh, church service out here is nothing charismatic. It's nothing, uh, uh, it's, we stick to the Bible. And what I started to do 51 sermons ago was um, Genesis 1-1. And we've gone one verse at a time through the Bible. Today we're going to be in Genesis 24. And um, so people should know that in advance that... Um, uh, what they're going to get is an analysis, analysis of the Bible rather than something that's, um, uh, you know, life application or, uh, uh, you know, anything like that. And uh, that way they don't come here and think that, you know, I, I got a jip deal or something. I want people to feel comfortable that they are going to hear the word of God and have it explained to them. And, um, of course, I uh, would like to uh, remember Paul and Elaine Stoll, their art uh missionaries from church on the beach that we support from this little church and um, their time is winding down right now they will be coming home next month and uh, they're in the very north of japan it's uh very cold up there and it gets cold very quickly and the snow starts piling up above the rooftops so um uh this is just their last few weeks there and uh, i would just pray that they would uh, not have anything that would cause them trouble or trial on their way out of there and I learned this week in their monthly newsletter that they're going to be traveling through uh, China for 10 days and uh, uh, they're just going to have a really good time of this but I could tell from his email and his um, uh, personal letter to me along with his um, uh, monthly newsletter that he is very very sad about leaving and uh, he's going to miss the people that he's grown to love over there and uh, Elaine as well I always say Paul but that includes Elaine um, Anyway, so please, if you think of it, keep Paul and Elaine in prayer for their, uh, 
their uh, coming move back to America. And um, of course, I have some flyers for Church on the Beach over here, and I got to get more printed up. I got a few left, but um, uh, if you have uh, want one of those or want to pass them out to anybody, please take them. And uh, as I said, this is the 51st sermon in Genesis. We're going to be in uh, Genesis uh, 24, 1 through 11 today. And uh, other than one sermon, Kelly Carlin has endured through all 51 of them. She did miss one because her daughter was in the uh, Veterans Day Parade. But uh, she's, uh, she's faithfully been here through every one. So I keep recognizing her just because it's such an achievement. <laughs> What's that? I saw it online. Well, you saw it online. So she's actually seen all 51. But... I, I got to tell you what, she is She is a real trooper, and to put up with this every week, I mean rain, and she's put up with red tide, and she's put up with crows, and every possible thing that can happen out on a beach, she's gone through it, and she still keeps coming, so I can't get rid of her. Anyway, um, uh, let me go ahead and do a New Testament reading, which uh, I haven't done for a couple weeks because of the length of the sermon. Today, the length isn't going to be as long. It'll be about 45 minutes, maybe 50 minutes long. So I will do a New Testament reading. And what I do when I do these is I simply read the New Testament, and anything that pops into my mind, I, uh, I state. And it's not any uh, Bible study or anything. It's just uh, kind of explaining what Paul is trying to convey because I only read a portion of the Scripture, and so you don't have the full context. But we'll start today, Romans 8, 12 through 25. Uh, he says, Therefore, brethren... We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. He was speaking out about the flesh versus the spirit. And he says, we are debtors to live according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. Why? Because Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. Sin is crucified in us. We are uh, positionally in Jesus Christ. And so we should be living as if that's the case. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And he's making an obvious statement here. This shouldn't be a spiritual application, but a lot of people take this wrong. If you live according to the flesh, you're not going to lose your salvation, but you will die. What that means is if I'm, uh, I call on Christ, I was an alcoholic, and then I go back to alcoholism, I'm going to drink myself to death. Or any of the other sins of the flesh that will eventually lead to your death. That's what he's speaking about. He says, um, but if by the Spirit you will put to deed the deeds of the death, your body, uh, uh, in the body you will live. Well, of course, if I give up all those terrible things that I did before coming to Christ, then I'm going to live, and I'm going to live a normal, happy life. Verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And once again, people will take this a little too far. Um, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, and I say it every week, that it says the moment you believe, the moment you trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's a done deal. You can never lose your salvation in Jesus Christ. But as I say week after week, you sure can lose your joy. And um, uh, so the moment that you are uh, sealed with, or believe in Jesus Christ, you're sealed with the Spirit. It, it's just finished. Anyway, um, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Well, you're led by the Spirit simply because you've been sealed by the Spirit. For if you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, and what he's speaking about is the law, and I'll talk about that in the sermon a little bit, the law brings about fear. It brings about terror of death because nobody can meet the strict demands of the law. The law condemns all to death. Moses said, if you do these things, you will live by them. And then he goes on later, uh, Paul explains that nobody can do these things. So the law, once again, has this overarching purpose. Two of them, actually. One is to show us how utterly sinful sin is. And the second is to show us our desperate need for Jesus Christ. Once we come to Jesus Christ, the law is put to death in us. And we are now free to live from the constraints of the law and the happiness and the joy of Jesus Christ. 
Um, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba being the Aramaic term for Father, basically Daddy. We can call God our Father once again. For people around the world that say, you know, God is uh, everybody's Father, the Bible does not teach that. You are either in the devil or you are in Christ. And there are no two, no other options to that. When you move into positionally into Jesus Christ, you become a co-inheritor with Jesus Christ of the great things God the Father has offered and you are adopted into his family. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He sealed us. If he is in us, then we are by default a child of God. And if children, then heirs, which I just said to you, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. Now, not all Christians suffer. So that's obviously not speaking of suffering with him in some physical way. It means that we suffer with him through the cross, through what he did on our behalf. And we should carry that with us every moment of our life, that he really went to that cross and he really died for us. And that suffering is something that we do not want to diminish and we don't want to forget. We want to hold it close to us and say, you know, this is what I deserve. Um, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And man, that glory is going to be gloriously glorious. It's going to be wonderful. Uh, it says elsewhere in the Bible that when he comes, we shall be like him. And uh, the, the exalted Christ, we're going to have the same nature as him. We're going to be the same in the sense that we will be eternal. We will never die. It, it is just going to be a wonderful hope. And uh, my daily devotional, which I've sent out for the past eight or nine years, we're going through Revelation right now. And it speaks of the new Jerusalem and what it will be like there. And we're right now starting, actually, I've started typing right now the uh, 22nd chapter uh, I send them out five days in advance, so the people that receive it are five days behind the end of the 21st chapter. But this glory is simply wonderful that we're going to see. So he says, um, uh, uh, I think I was in verse 18, for I consider that the suffering of this present time, I've read that one, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. When we are glorified, the creation itself is going to be renewed. Of course, there's going to be a millennial reign of Christ and there's going to be uh, other things that occur, but there will be this eternal state when the new Jerusalem comes down and the entire creation is going to be freed from this bondage. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Uh, just wonderful words there. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And we see that. Um, you know, I think that I actually read this passage as a New Testament reading a few weeks ago, and I might, might be repeating myself, but right now we see um, little puppies die and we see uh, bad things happen all over the world. And that is what Paul is speaking about, is that all of these terrible things are happening because sin entered the world. It came through Adam, and the whole creation is fallen because of that act. Um, verse 21, because I've read that, verse 22, um, just read that, verse 23. Not only that, but we who have the fruit, first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, 
eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And if anybody here is not a Christian, you can't fully appreciate this. But if you're a Christian and you're waiting on Jesus, that is your only hope. I know that. That's all I think about day and night is that I can't wait for the day he comes. And it's almost a selfish thing because there's people out here that need Jesus Christ. And they need to be brought into the family of Christ. But my spirit is conflicted because I want to tell everybody about Jesus. But at the same time, I just want to be with Jesus. I mean, it's it's that that tearing apart in my body of being here to help others and going to be with Christ. Anyway, so uh, verse 24, for we, I want you to listen to the next two verses I'm going to finish up with because I'm going to speak about this today and I'm certainly going to offend somebody when I say what I'm going to say during the sermon. Um, For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Keep that in mind. Verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Keep those verses in mind, those last two. Paul is saying that if we have sight in our hope, then it's no longer hope. We're not living by faith, but we're living by sight. So I want you to keep that precept in your mind because I'm going to say something. And as I said, what I say will certainly upset somebody here today because of the, the world we live in, but I'm absolutely convinced of what I'm going to tell you, and uh, uh, I will stand by it. And there's only one way it'll ever change, and maybe I'll mention it, and maybe I won't. But anyway, um, that's the New Testament reading. And uh, until we get musicians, which we had when we were doing this during the day service, um, I'm going to read another psalm. We do this in place of uh, music and instruments. Um, just there's a few people here that have never been here before. When we were doing this in the afternoon on Sundays, we had musicians and everything. And I told every person that attended there that if you have your own church, I don't want you to come to church on the beach and be a member here because I don't want to steal somebody from any other church. And uh, Pat here faithfully comes out once a week uh, or once a month. She has her own church. She, she stayed there. And, uh, but she comes out when they have a afternoon service. So she's not violating anything I said. And then I can't get rid of my mother, even though she does have her own church. She does come out here from time to time. But uh, for the most part, people that have their own church, I wanted them to to do that. And that's why we don't have musicians. And until we can get somebody here, um, I have no problem reading the Psalms. To me, it's much more beautiful than music anyway. But I just want you to know why we do it the way we do it. We'll read one more Psalm. This will be the 85th Psalm, and then we'll get into uh, what we need to get into as far as the sermon. Um, This is Psalm 85 to the chief musician, a Psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. Selah. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him 
and shall make his footsteps our pathway. Wonderful words from the Lord. All right, today is our sermon. It's our first sermon of four sermons in Genesis 24. All right, and today we're going to be speaking on Genesis 24, verses 1 through 11. This is called To Find a Wife. Before I get into the sermon, though, every week I do the same thing I give uh, this day in history. Today is the 25th of November, and on this day in history in 1783, during the Revolutionary War, the British evacuated New York. And New York was their last military position, uh, yes, military position in the United States. So the war was coming to an end, and America was being established as uh, a nation without the interference of foreign powers anymore. And uh, it just kind of uh, breaks my heart how this nation is kind of getting away from uh, its independent stand and is starting to coalesce with the ideas of Europe once again. And uh, uh, we're just we're really falling away from the central tenets of what the Founding Fathers uh, wanted for this nation, would be a nation under Jesus Christ, with him as the head, and then with the executive legislature and um, judicial branches honoring the Lord. And how far have we fallen from that? But that's the way of the world, and I do believe it's being set up for the end times and Israel to stand alone in the world, which seems to be happening. Um, in 1867, Alfred Nobel, he patented something. Does anybody here know what Alfred Nobel patented? It was dynamite. That's what he made his uh, great amount of money off of. And, of course, uh, he had this uh, tearing in his own life about the good and the bad that dynamite had uh, resulted in. And uh, uh, so he set up the uh, Nobel uh, Prizes. And, of course, um, there are many different types of Nobel Prizes. And one of the things I was thinking about this morning concerning these prizes is that um, if you look at the subjective areas of the uh, prizes, such as the Peace Prize and the Literature Prize, they used to be handed out in a way like the old Academy Awards were handed out, based on value. And now they're just, it's based on a political um, uh, agenda. Whereas the non-subjective areas, the things like chemistry and, and medicine and one after another, invariably go to one, one of two categories of people. And there are exceptions, but those two categories are either Jews or Christians. And they are the ones that are always at the forefront of, forefront of the non-subjected areas of these prizes. Whereas you take the subjective areas, Al Gore was given one for global warming, which is completely a false tenet. And um, then we had Barack Obama, who was given one, Yes, he received it towards the end of his first year in the presidency, but it was awarded within days of him being elected president when he hadn't signed a single bill into legislation. He had done absolutely nothing in order to receive that. So what I'm saying is when you see these prizes handed out, don't be buffooned by people or, or you know, uh, led astray by uh, these seemingly pious acts that they're making. They're, it's just not a valid award anymore, whereas the non-subjective areas are always being given to the people that are actually, you know, they, they're deserving of them. Anyway, in uh, 1920, the first play-by-play -play broadcast of a football game was aired in College Station, Texas. The game was between the University of Texas and Texas A&M. And uh, most people that know me personally know that I cannot stand sports. But the reason why I included this one in here is because I will watch sports games not to see the sports, but it never ceases to intrigue me how they can have a person or a group of people 
do a play and then within two seconds of that play being over, they have edited that video. They turn it around. They show you the video with all kinds of little things and little drawings all over it. And they show you exactly what happened from four different angles. And they do it within a second or two. And I think it is a marvel, the things that these people can do in especially football games. And uh, then, of course, the announcers always throw in the most incredible facts and figures, things that nobody could ever care about in the world. And yet they have them and they tie them somehow into the game. Uh, one of the facts and figures might be, well, anybody with a, um, uh, a right missing toe that has a size 12 uh, triple E shoe uh, will win in the third quarter. He'll get three touchdowns and the game will win by four points. And they'll say, but the exception is if somebody's uh, missing a, uh, a right middle finger or something on the opposing team, then they win by 17 points. And it's amazing that the, and they have these things immediately. As soon as the play is over, they have something to tie it in, which nobody could ever care about, and yet they make it interesting. So I, that's my thing about sports is not the sports itself, but what they do with the sports and how they present it. It's just a marvel. Anyway, 1955 in the United States, the Interstate Commerce Commission banned racial seg segregation on interstate trains and buses. And I got to tell you something, uh, some of the people that are younger here, there's one or two of them, my son here, he, he won't know anything about this, but they actually used to have places where you sat separate when you were black or white, you know, you couldn't sit in certain seats. And an example of that, which I would like to tell you is my uncle lives right down the road here, just very close. And um, uh, he came here in 1948, along with my father and my grandfather and the whole family, but they came separately. A couple of them drove, a couple of them came from another area, a couple of them uh, came from... Uh, uh, by train. Well, my uncle was one of them that came from Philadelphia to uh, Florida by train. And being from the north, he never saw anything like what he saw when he got off the train. He said the first thing he saw when the train doors opened was two fountains. And one said whites only and one said colored only. And he said he thought he was in a different world. How could I be in a world where people are treated like this? So, you know, the fact is that this was a reality in our nation, but in contrast, and I want to say this because I try to be as honest as possible about these things, we are all human beings and we are all on an equal footing before God. But the opposite is now happening, where we have people like Jesse Jackson who are trying to continue these racial strife between the races because this is how he makes money and this is how he gets his prestige. So what we did in the past was absolutely wrong. 100%. There's no doubt about it. The Bible doesn't bear it out, and uh, uh, just morality doesn't bear it out. But at the same time, what Jesse Jackson and people like him are doing is exactly the same thing, but they're doing it in reverse. And we as Christians should not tolerate that. We need to make sure that everybody is seen without any color lens at all, but human beings created in God's image and for his glory. Anyway, i got a couple of birthdays, and then we'll get into our uh, main uh, service. Andrew Carnegie was born on this day in 1835. And then uh, Ricardo Montebon, if you remember Fantasy Island, and uh, he had his little guy ne next to him, Knickknack. And uh, then, of course, he also played in Star Trek. He was Khan. And he did that one uh, memorable movie, The Wrath of Khan. So uh, that was in, uh, he was born in 1920. And then Ben Stein was born in 1944. And if you know who Ben Stein was, he, uh, uh, his debut into my life was a movie called uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And uh, he was like, anybody, anybody, anybody? It was just a very funny movie. Yes, she, she apparently likes that. 
But um, uh, then Ben Stein has gone on. He's a great thinker. He is a Jewish man. He's not a Christian, but he understands morality like most people never will. He is a very moral person, and uh, my hope would be that his eyes would be open to his Messiah before the day of his death. And uh, finally, we had born in 1960, Amy Grant. And I listened to a couple of her songs this morning. She's a Christian artist. And uh, she really gets skewered by uh, uh, very fundamental Christians because she admitted having smoked pot since she was a Christian. And, you know, that's intolerable. And uh, most people don't look in the mirror and see that they're thinking and doing things they shouldn't be doing every minute of the day. Like Charlie Garrett, you know, I, I go to bed and I have thoughts in my head and I get up and I do stupid things. Um, and, you know, she obviously is the same, but uh, I love her music. She's got a wonderful voice. It's very calm Christian music. It's not um, anything that's uh, too spunky or anything, but my goodness, wonderful music from Amy Grant, born on this day in 1960. Now what I'm going to do is read you the 11 verses that we'll be going through, and then we'll get into uh, an evaluation of those verses. This is Genesis 24, 1 through 11, and the title of the sermon is To Find a Wife. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife from my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family and who spoke to me and swore to me saying to your descendants, I give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife from my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. So only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. We're going to start, as I just read you, chapter 24 today, and this chapter gives us a story about how Isaac got his wife. The account is very, very lovely, and it goes into great detail so that you will hopefully come to see in it patterns and pictures that focus on our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because this chapter is so long, and I said this before I got started, it's going to take four full weeks to get through it, and it won't make complete sense unless you listen to the entire series. So everybody that's here today must be here for the next four weeks. And if you're watching this on video, you're not allowed to skip the other three videos because it's, it's that beautiful of a story. Please don't miss it. When you see the overall pictures of the Godhead, it is a beautiful testament to the way that God works through his word. He takes real people that actually lived, just as he does in the book of Ruth. If you've ever read that, these are real human beings, and he uses them to make a story about what's coming in his own son. He uses them and their circumstances to point to Jesus Christ and our relationship with him. One of the things that we need to understand in order to really grasp this chapter are the roles of the individual members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
The pictures in today's sermon are dealing mostly with the Father and with the Holy Spirit in the preparation for a bride for the Son. Our text verse for today comes from Proverbs. It's chapter 18, it's the 22nd verse. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. And of course, I found what's good 28 years ago and I've been favored ever since. So thank you, thank you Lord for what you gave me. God performed the very first wedding ceremony when he presented Eve to Adam. And I know at that time, Adam's heart skipped and it jumped and he was just as excited as he could be because he saw all these animals two by two and he's naming them and he sees that they all have a partner and he doesn't have somebody. And when he woke up after that deep sleep, there's this beautiful bride and God presented Eve to Adam. And now God is preparing a bride for his own son. This is a chaste and spotless virgin who will be selected especially for him. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first of three thoughts today is to find a bride. Verse one, now Abraham was old, well advanced in age and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. As we go along, we're gonna see people in this account representing others. Abraham is a picture of God the Father. So I want you to keep that in mind as we go. There's both a literal story and there is the intended picture of what God is showing us as he works out his plan of redemption. And this isn't something that I'm making up out of my own head. Last week we went through Genesis 23 and I showed you some pictures that showed us different characters being or resembling different people in the future, in the person of Jesus, in, in the person of Adam, etc. This week, it has been understood since the most ancient times that this is certainly speaking of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's no doubt about what is being revealed here. So don't think I'm making these things up out of my own head. At this time, Abraham is 140 years old. We won't hear, read that in this chapter, but in the next chapter, we're gonna see that Isaac was married when he was 40 years old. Abraham, had Isaac when he was 100, and so we can put that together and come up with this date. Sarah died at the age of 127, and so this is three years after Sarah's death, and it is the year 2149 Anno Mundi, or from creation. An amazing fact which I would hate to skip over, and I went and I sat down and I figured it all out to make sure that I had this right for this particular sermon, because I've been waiting for this, is that Shem, who is Noah's son, and I mean Noah from all of those chapters ago, is still alive. And he is Isaac's great, 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 great grandfather. And he's still gonna be alive for 10 more years. That is 12 generations alive, or he is alive. Some of his uh, descendants have already died, but he's still alive with 12 generations behind him. So there are nine greats, there is a grandfather, and a father that this man has seen come to fruition. Anyway, in his old age, it says that Jehovah had blessed Abraham in all things. And we already know from Abraham's life that he is a very wealthy man. And in just a few verses, we'll see that he will use this immense wealth that he has in the process of obtaining a wife for Isaac. Verse two, so Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my right thigh. As I said, Abraham is a picture of God the Father, under my thigh, not my right thigh. He is a picture of God the Father. And as we go on, we will see that this servant is a picture of the Holy Spirit. 
Abraham here calls the oldest servant of his house, who is also the one who rules over all he has. This guy is like the CEO of a company. He makes all of the decisions and he directs all of the people. He is the most trusted person in Abraham's life. Almost all commentators, and I, I don't know anybody that would uh, differ with this, agree that this is Eliezer of Damascus, who was the chief steward of the house all the way back in chapter 15 of Genesis. That was 55 years earlier, and he was the head of the household at that time, which means that he has worked for Abraham and been in charge of Abraham's household for many, many years. From this chapter, we will see that he is completely and wholeheartedly dedicated to Abraham. The chief servant of the household, and this is an important precept to understand, he speaks not on his own authority. He's speaking on the authority of the one who sends him, who is Abraham. And this is exactly how Jesus describes the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16. He says, however, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you of things to come. We'll see how accurately this servant fulfills the position just described of the Holy Spirit in the verses ahead. Even his name, though, implies this. His name is Eliezer, which means God is help. Jesus not only calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth, but he also calls him the helper. He does this in John 14. He says, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. He is the one to help Abraham in the task ahead, just as the Holy Spirit is the helper of God in the parallel tasks that are going on in the church age even now. Anyway, Abraham calls this chief surgeon and he says to him, please put your hand under my thigh. This is the most intimate part of the man and it is therefore the most solemn vow that can be made. Under the thigh is where Abraham's life continued on through his seed, resulting in Isaac. It is also where the rite of circumcision was conducted. Both of these acts, the issuing of the seed and the rite of circumcision, point to the coming Messiah. Abraham's seed would issue through Isaac to the Messiah Jesus. He is the son of promise. And circumcision, as a rite, pictures the cutting away of the sin nature in the life of Abraham and those who would follow him. And therefore, this vow that's being made is the highest priority of the servant who will carry it out. Verse three, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Abraham uses an elongated form of what it says in Genesis 1.1. You remember back there it said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here he says, the Lord, the God of the heavens and the God of the earth. There is no doubt in the Old Testament that Jehovah is both the creator and the sustainer. And yet Genesis 1.1 doesn't say that. Instead, it only says God or the word Elohim. So we are learning as we progress through the Bible, both the nature of the Godhead and how God reveals himself through verses like this one here. We've already seen that Jehovah walked in the Garden of Eden, and he walked right up to Adam and Eve, and he talked to him. And he walked up to Abraham while Abraham was sitting in the door of his tent. In both of these cases, he talked to these people face to face, and yet we know that God is spirit, that God dwells in an unapproachable light, and that no man has seen God. 
And we're also going to learn from both Old and New Testaments that Jehovah is Jesus. So if you're having a hard time grasping these things, don't be ashamed and don't be overwhelmed. The mystery of the Godhead and the mystery of the Incarnation are so complicated that men have been studying these things for thousands of years and we are still struggling to fully comprehend them. And I'm going to give you an example because this is an important thing that happened to me this week. I had somebody email me, I think it was actually yesterday, and then he emailed again today about uh, a heretic that his name is Nestorius. He's a person that lived many years ago and uh, he came up with a concept of the Godhead which is faulted. And yet it is so close to the actual model of the Trinity that there is so much confusion that you almost think you're reading the same thing. But it is absolutely important to understand the nature of Jesus Christ. He is fully God and he is fully man. There is no separation between those two and yet there's no intermingling between the two. They are forever united without any separation or intermingling. What Nestorius did is he put a little separation between the two. And what I told this gentleman, I gave him some examples of how you can know what is correct, but this goes right back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 says that things reproduce after their own kind. And if a human reproduces with a human, then you're going to have a human. God put that pattern in there specifically so that we could understand what he was going to do through uh, humanity with himself when he united with Mary in her womb and out came the God-man. He still wasn't understanding, so today I gave him an example from the book, I think it's um, 2 Samuel, where mules are introduced for the first time. A mule is a combination of a horse and a donkey. The animal, this mule, gets its horseness from the horse and it gets its animalness from, or donkeyness from the donkey. And you have this combination there. That's, I, I have to think that maybe that's why that's in there. It just popped into my head this morning, but that must be why mules are introduced in the Bible at all. It's to give us these pictures and these patterns of what the Godhead is like. And we need to be careful. But if you're not sure of these things, don't feel frustrated. But at the same time, study and make sure that you check and check. Never let somebody tell you something is true without checking it. Because I say this many times, is that bad doctrine is sin. It doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. But people come to me and they say, well, you know, how do I know this and that? And when you get up to the judgment seat, God isn't going to say, you know, how much time did you have to watch TV in your life? How much time did you spend on your cell phone? How much time did you play the we? Why couldn't you have spent that learning about me for my word? Because his word will reveal these things and it takes study. And it, it, the point that we need to understand is that we have to trust for now that what God has revealed in the Bible is true. And then we align our theology with that rather than trying to align our theology with what we want to believe about God. And that's a fundamental distinction we need to remember. It is by Jehovah though, who is the God of the heavens and the God of the earth that Abraham makes Eliezer swear that he won't take a wife for Isaac from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom he dwells. It's an important term. We have here in this term an interesting hidden concept. The word that Abraham uses for dwell here is the Hebrew word Yoshev. And this isn't going to make a lot of difference to most of you, but there are people that will watch this on the internet that will find this interesting, and that's why I include these things in here. This word, Yoshev, has the same numerical value as the name of the chief servant, Eliezer. Both of them equal the number 318. And if you were here during the sermon of Genesis 14, 
you might remember that Abraham had 318 trained servants that went off with him to defeat the kings of the east. If, I don't know if you remember that sermon or not, but what I think here is being told us is that Abraham, who is a picture of God the Father, is sending his helper, Eliezer, who is a picture of the Holy Spirit, to conduct a particular task, which is his responsibility. In other words, the things of God the Father and where he dwells are different than those of the Holy Spirit, the helper. I don't think this is a crazy analysis either, but rather these things are hidden here for us to dig out and to learn so that we can see how each member of the Godhead functions and what their responsibility is. As far as the reason why he was told not to take a wife from among the Canaanites, it certainly stems from the curse of Canaan, which goes all the way back to chapter 9 of Genesis. When Ham, the youngest son of Noah, he did something uh, vile to his father. And in turn, Noah turned around and cursed Ham's youngest son. Here's what he said to him. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. It would be out of the question to have a son of promise to come uh, to get a wife from a people who are under a curse. And this brings in the next concept. Isaac is a picture of Jesus, the son of the father. The Canaanites, then, are a picture of the people of the world, all who are under a curse because of the law, which is God's standard. This comes from Galatians chapter 3, and I'll read you how this is explained there. For as many are the works of the law are under a curse. And we talked about that in our Romans reading today. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Paul cites Moses, what Moses says in the Old Testament but that no one is justified in the sight of the law in the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith he goes to another part of the law to prove that it is by faith that we are justified in the sight of God and then he explains what he just read about Moses yet the law is not a faith god says don't do this and so you don't do it that's not faith that's obedience the, but the man who does them shall live by them Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He goes back to the law. Anybody hung on a tree is under a curse. Christ hung on a tree, and therefore he became a curse in our place. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That ties in exactly with what we said in Romans today, which is wonderful that happened to be what we read. And it also ties in with what I said about Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. By faith you receive Jesus Christ, you receive the Spirit. One more thing about the Canaanites is that in addition to being under a curse, they would eventually be dispossessed from the land of Canaan. Abraham knew that this was coming in 350 years, and so he did not want a son from this group of people. Verse 4, but you shall go to my country and my family and take a wife from my son Isaac. At this time, it would be very good to introduce Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 21. It's verses 1 and 2. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Jesus equates the kingdom of heaven to being like a king. And Abraham is certainly, as we've seen in many sermons, a kingly figure in the Bible and he is arranging this marriage for his son. 
He is arranging for someone to marry Isaac who is of his same people and his same family. They would have the same customs and they would have the same understanding of God as they do and they would have the same nature. So I hope what I just said to you, you are seeing a picture of the church and of Jesus because we share in his same nature. We share in the same family. As it said in Romans, we cry out to God, Abba, Father. This is all being prefigured in this beautiful story of Abraham obtaining a wife for his son Isaac. Uh, our second thought today, she must come by faith. Verse 5, and the servant said to him, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? Before swearing the oath, the servant asked this obvious question because it's something that if he does not get an answer for now, it could get him into trouble later. What if I can't find someone willing to follow me back here? Shall I take Isaac back there? The way that he speaks shows that he assumes he will find someone, but she may want to see Isaac first. Before actually agreeing to marry him, and that could be a problem for the servant, if this happens, would it be right to take Isaac back to Mesopotamia to meet her? This verse now points to us, and this is what I said is going to upset somebody in here. I'm sure of it. Regardless of what thousands upon thousands of people have claimed since Jesus left, no person has ever seen Jesus Christ since the time of the apostles. I don't care how adamant they sound. I don't care how honest they are. I don't care how convincing their story is. It has not happened. There are several ways that we can know this directly from the Bible, and they are prefigured in this verse right here. We are betrothed to a husband that we have not seen. One of the countless sets of verses in the Bible which explain us, the one that I read from Romans, and I asked you to pay attention to it, says it as well. But here's from 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuine, genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Faith, as Hebrews clearly explains it, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith that is seen is no longer faith, and we, as the bride of Christ, must live by faith and not by sight. I wish anyone who claims that they have seen Jesus well, and I mean that sincerely, I simply don't believe him. I do not believe I've read dozens of stories, dozens, I've seen YouTube videos, I've seen books of people writing about their son going off to heaven. I hear continuously, I hear this all the time, people over in Muslim nations, missionaries over there claiming that Muslims are having visions of Jesus Christ and coming to Jesus by the millions. And I don't believe one of those stories. Those people are being paid as missionaries and they're in very difficult circumstances and I honestly believe they have good intent, but I don't believe their stories. If you disagree with me, that's fine. We can disagree on that. but. This verse and throughout the Bible, it says that we live by faith and not by sight. Jesus Christ has not come back to this world yet. That's why we take communion. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If he's come, then we don't need to proclaim the Lord's death anymore because we have sight. It's verse six, but Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there.
And that confirms what I just said. Isaac was not to be taken back to the land where his bride was residing. And Jesus will not return to the land where we are now. Instead, we are going to meet him for the first time when we meet him in the clouds at the rapture. This verse is an imperative from the Father. Either the bride agrees to the terms or the bride will not meet the one that she's been chosen for. And this reflects our state. We must agree without seeing Jesus that he is the one in whom we will place our trust and our hope. If we aren't willing to, by faith, receive what he offers, then we will have no part at all in what God is doing through him. Just as the choice is given to the bride of Isaac, the choice is also given to the people of the world. As there have been the pattern since the very first verses after the fall, everything about our relationship with Jesus Christ comes down to faith, everything. This is what God expects and this is what pleases him. He is asking each one of us to pick up his love letter to us, to read it and to accept it by faith. Are you willing to do this? because Romans 10 explains it very clearly. How then shall they call on him who they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? It doesn't say anything about sight, it's speaking of hearing. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Will we stay in this land not believing God's word or will we be ready to meet the Lord in the air when he comes? The word which was sent from Father Abraham through Eliezer is given and the word which has been sent from God the Father through the Holy Spirit, which is the Holy Bible, it makes its claim right in there that all scripture is breathed out by God. It was carried... Uh, given by men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that word has also been given. This is another in a long, long line of reasons why you should read your Bible, you should know your Bible, and you should believe your Bible. The Son is in there, in its pages, and he is waiting for his bride. Verse 7, the Lord, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, to your descendants I give this land. He will send you his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Here in verse 7, Abraham shortens what he said earlier and simply says, the Lord God of the heavens, or Yehovah Elohe Hashemayim. This time he leaves off the second half of the title, which said, the Lord God of the earth. Why? Why did he do that? The only real difference between these two verses is that the Canaanites are not mentioned and so it must be that he is connecting Jehovah of the earth to the land of Canaan, the promised land. The one who brought him into Canaan is now more fully revealed to him. Abraham says that it was the Lord, the God of heaven that took him from his father's house and from the land of his family and it was he who swore to him that he would be given the land. The same Lord he is certain will now find a wife for Isaac for him. And so you can comprehend what I really want you to understand about this verse. Think of it like this. You work for a person that owns two big companies, Charlie's Cookies and Charlie's Cakes. You work at Charlie's Cakes. You tell your best employee that you want him to do something for you, and you let him know that the, the owner of Charlie's Cookies and Charlie's Cakes will be keeping an eye on how this goes. Your employee agrees, 
And so you tell them that you need to find out how they get their cookies to be both tasty and delicious. He says, what if I find out, but I need someone from Charlie's Cakes to go to the cookie company? That's a no-no because company rules won't allow that. Instead, you tell him that the owner of Charlie's Cookies will ensure that everything goes smoothly. Even though the same person owns both companies, you now only mention the cookie company. This is what's going on here with Abraham. Throughout the Bible, we are seeing an explanation of how we can and we should perceive God. He's sovereign over all of creation, but he's working out things differently at different times, fulfilling different roles. This is the same as when we call on Jesus as Savior, but we also call him our Redeemer. We call him King, but we also call him Lord. We call him our brother, and yet we call him our friend. God is putting these details into this particular passage, and he's asking us to pay attention to them, not to skip over them with a hum or a ho or a fee, a fi, a fo or a dumb. I mean, he wants us to pay attention to these things. If it's important enough for God to place in his word, then we owe him the honor and we owe him the respect of paying attention to it as we read and study our Bible. This is a great God. This is a beautiful word, and this is a wonderful, wonderful Lord. And that brings us to our third and final thought today, which is the son remains in the promised land. Verse 8, and if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. Abraham already knows the outcome of what he's requested. God had promised him that his descendants through Isaac would possess the land. He also knows that one of the Canaanites will not be suitable as a wife for Isaac. He is going on the certainty that what he is doing is the right thing. And yet, he has misunderstood things in the past. And because of this, he tells Eliezer that he will release him from the oath if the woman that he is absolutely certain is there won't come back with him. But the imperative is repeated. Only do not take my son back there. There must be a willingness on the part of the bride, and she must accept this deal by faith and not by sight. Isaac was to remain in the promised land while the servant sought out a bride for him. In the same way, Jesus will remain in heaven exactly as the Bible says until the Holy Spirit has his bride ready. This is both a challenge and it's a test for us. Are we willing to live by faith and by faith alone in what God has promised? Some of the gifts that the Bible speaks of for believers are wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, mercy, discernment, tongues, administration, and helping. Now let me ask you something you don't need to answer out loud. Are any of the gifts that I just read you unique to Christianity? I'll read it again. Wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, mercy, discernment, tongues, administration, or helping. Not one of them. Every single one of these can be found in other religions. There are prophets in other religions. There are false prophets, but there are prophets. There are people who speak in tongues. I've lived in Japan. My neighbor used to roll around and speak in these crazy tongues, just like they do in charismatic churches all the time. They do this in many religions around the world. There are people that are healers. There are performers of miracles. There are givers. There are those who lead, and there are those who exhort. Every one of the gifts that is listed in the Bible can be found in other religions. If we are relying on outward signs of gifts in order to be taken into the promised land, then we're making a fundamental error in our religion, and we are violating the very premise of the Bible, that we are to live by faith 
of all of the gifts that I mentioned, the gift of discernment to me is the most wonderful because we can tell when other gifts are not real. But even this gift can be misused by wrong discernment. In the end, we must have what we must have in order to be among the marriage ceremony is that our promised bridegroom is who he claims to be and we have faith in that. Keep that in mind as you go to a church that requires you to speak in tongues in order to be saved because that is not what the Bible is trying to tell you at all. In no way. There are seminaries all over Florida as I was looking for a seminary to attend that said that if you don't speak in tongues then you don't have the gift of the Spirit and if you don't have the gift of the Spirit then you are not saved because the two go hand in hand. You must be discerning in your theology. And this is a very important tenet to keep in mind. Verse nine, so the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning the matter. As I said earlier, in the Godhead, there are individual roles. And this isn't speculation, but this is rather what the Bible teaches in both Testaments. The spirit issues from the father through the son in this progression, it doesn't go around the sun. The Gospel of John makes that absolutely clear. Because this is so, we have a, a picture of the work of the Spirit beginning right in this verse here. The servant was asked to perform his duties on an oath, which required him to place his hand under Abraham's thigh. Here in this picture is the Spirit receiving his direction from the Father through the Son just as the servant is symbolically receiving his instruction from Abraham through Isaac who issued from Abraham. What the servant is doing is directed by the father for the benefit of the son. Even though the son Isaac isn't explicitly in this picture, he is seen here implicitly because of the placement of the hand during the oath because Abraham's seed issues from this spot. Likewise, even though the son isn't seen in the world today, he is implicitly here, both in the Word, which is the Holy Bible, and in Spirit, which are through the gifts that he gives out to each of us. And this will become evident in the next verse. This is verse 10. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. 10 is the number for biblical fullness. I could give you a lot of examples of this, but I'm gonna give you just two. I'm gonna give you one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. There are 10 commandments, but in the law of Moses, there are 16, 613 lesser laws. However, all of these lesser laws are summed up in the 10 commandments. They are the fullness of the law. A second example comes from the book of Revelation. If you read your Bible, you'll eventually get to it. It's uh, the 66th book, it's at the very end. And here's what Jesus says there. He says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The term 10 days indicates a fullness of testing. It is an indeterminate amount of time which is used by Job, it's used by Dan Daniel, and it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament. As I said, there are numerous occasions where the, 10, the number 10 is used in the Bible and it always indicates a fullness. And this is what we see here. The servant takes 10 donkeys loaded with all of his master's good, according to that particular verse. This does not mean that he left Abraham and all of the people sitting in the camp on the ground out in the open. Instead, it means he took a fullness or a full representation of everything that Abraham had and what he possessed and he went off on his journey. And once again, this is exactly what the spirit does. 
The New Testament is filled with descriptions of the gifts of the Spirit, the workings of the Spirit, and the comfort of the Spirit. This servant, picturing the Holy Spirit, set off with his goods in the direction that the Father had told him to and on behalf of the Son. And he's echoing Jesus' words about the Holy Spirit as he goes. Here's what Jesus said about the Spirit. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and he will declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. And I want you to understand that in a few verses in the next sermon next week, he is going to explicitly say to the uh, family of Rebecca that Abraham has given all things to his son Isaac. So it's confirming what it says right here. Therefore I said he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So right in this verse we have all three members of the Godhead and they're being prefigured by what we're looking at in Genesis. Isaac is the inheritor of Abraham's estate and all things which belong to Abraham likewise belong to him. And so it is with Jesus. He is the inheritor of all things according to the Bible. Isaac is to receive a bride and Jesus is also going to receive one. The question is, will you be ready when he comes? Verse 10 continues. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, the city of Nahor. Off goes the servant with his 10 camels to Mesopotamia. In Hebrew, this land is known as Naharaim, which means the two rivers. In this land, he went to the city of Nahor, who is Abraham's younger brother. In the coming verses, Nahor is going to be mentioned several times, but he's only going to be mentioned in conjunction with somebody else. In other words, he's probably already dead. But this guy Nahor is a very important figure in the Bible, even though he doesn't, it, nothing is recorded him, of him actually doing anything. In a coming sermon, I'm going to explain why he's such an important person. Verse 11, and he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. This is our last verse of the day, and we end with the servant's arrival at a well outside the city. The importance of wells is found throughout the Bible, and this one is no different. The day I was typing this sermon, I was thinking about the importance of water in our own lives. If we're deprived of water, then nothing in the world is more important to us. Food is similar, but if we are deprived of both food and water, the first thing that we will go for is water. We are so tied to it that even a short period without water in our life will end. The water is the very first spot that this servant goes to after his long journey. Not only does he need it, but his donkeys need it as well. And when he arrives, it is evening time, it says. This is the end of a long day and the time when women go out to draw water for the evening. They do this because it's hot during the day. Going in the early morning and then again in the evening allows them to keep out of the heat of the sun while they're carrying this very heavy jar and then they have to work at the well to bring up the water and then they have to carry this even heavier jar back. In John 4, there's a story about a woman at a well and I want to take just a minute, I want to read this to you. I'm going to make just a very short point. It's a very detailed account, but I want to read this and just make a, a point about your relationship with God. Verse 5 from John chapter 4, it says, So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sichar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, 
and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. What I want you to get from this story today about the life of Jesus is that this woman was going out to the well at the sixth hour. By the time standard that John uses in his gospel narrative, this is noon. It is the very middle of a hot day in Israel. And several of us here have been to Israel. And I can tell you, even in the winter when it's cold, it's hot there because the sun is so bright and so intense. Unlike the other ladies, she went at noon because she was an outcast. This lady had been married five times. And at that, that time, she was living with a man that she was not married to. But Jesus sat and he talked with her. And he led her to a much deeper well with much purer water than she would ever find anywhere else. The point I'd like to make to you today is that your life may be completely messed up and you may be hiding it from others, but Jesus is there and he already knows everything that you have done or you ever will do. You full well may need the water of life that he offers. If so, then stop going to the well in the heat of the day and looking for water that will never satisfy. Instead, reach out to him and reach out to the promises that he makes and this water that he offers will spring up to everlasting life. And he offers it freely. On the last page of the Bible, we read this in Revelation 22, verse 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And the, let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take freely of the water of life. The spirit of God is out right now and he's bearing gifts and he's calling the bride to meet the bridegroom. And someday he will depart with that bride to meet the Lord. Though we haven't seen him, we love him. And though you may not know him, he knows you. Let me take just a moment in case you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and explain how you can become a part of what God is doing through and for his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That's why we die, is because we have sin in our lives. And we didn't just start sinning when we were young. You, you know very well if you have children, you didn't have to teach them to do wrong. They already know that. You have to teach them to do right. The fact is that we inherited sin from our father, Adam. And so we're condemned already, according to Jesus in John 3:18. There's nothing that we can do to obtain God's favor. We can't give our body to the flames. We can't give everything to the poor. There's no thing that we can do except have faith in what he has already done in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the Bible says that God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Now we're reading this beautiful story about Isaac getting a bride. Well, that's why Christ died is so that he could purchase a bride and that someday we will be in his presence for all of eternity, living on the eternal waters, the well of life that issues from the throne of God. And we can have that by simple faith. The Bible says that if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. That's all that God asks of you is to demonstrate faith that you cannot save yourself 
and that this man came and lived among us and he fulfilled the law that we can't fulfill and he gave his life up as a substitute for us taking all of the punishment that we deserve so if you've never asked jesus christ to be your lord and savior i would ask you to do it today and i would ask you also to go out and tell other people about it because the time is short and there's one more thing that i'd ask you to do and that's to read his word every single day of your life when you get up in the morning and when you go to bed because you will stand before jesus christ if you're saved already and he's going to ask you how did you come to know me? And what did you do after you came to know me? To know me in my fullness. And there's only one way. Jesus Christ reveals the unseen Father, and the Bible reveals Jesus Christ. And we can't know our God without that book. So please read your Bible every day of your life. That's my heart's prayer to you today. We have a closing verse, which is from 2 Samuel 14, 14. For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. And yes, he devised a way for all of us through Jesus Christ. Next week, we're gonna talk about Genesis 24, 12 through 28. It's entitled Rebecca. And we're gonna take communion, but before we do, every week I type up a poem based on the, the uh, verses that we evaluated, and today is no different. This is called Sending Out for a Bride. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in life, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all ways. It was his intent to obtain for his son a wife, one that would bring him joy all of his days. So he said to his oldest servant, a very good guy, the one who ruled over all his house, please put your hand here under my thigh, and I will make you swear an oath concerning my son's spouse. By the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, you will not take a wife for my son from Canaan's daughters, those among whom I dwell, and the land of his birth. You shall go to my country, to the two rivers' waters. From my family you shall take for my son Isaac a wife. This is the oath to which you shall bind your life. And the servant said to him, Perhaps this woman will not be willing to follow me to this land whence Isaac was begot. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? Beware you did not take him back there, Abraham did exclaim. The Lord God of heaven who led me from my father's band and from the land of my family and who spoke to me swore to me saying to your descendants I give this land he will send his angel before you to find a wife you see and you shall take a wife for my son from there but if the woman is not willing to follow you then you will be released from this oath do not despair only do not take my son back this you shall not do so the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and to the oath he swore then he took ten of Abraham's camels and he waved goodbye, and departed with his master's goods, which the camels bore. He arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, and he made his camels kneel down outside the city. From the journey, he was probably tired, thirsty, and sore, but he was on a mission, not one looking for pity. By a well of water at evening time, he waited, the time when women go out to draw from the well. And certainly he sat and he anticipated the completion of his task in hearing the wedding bell. Like the father is looking for a bride for his son and the spirit is searching hearts, searching everyone. And the heart which is tender and responds to the call will be led to the waters which spring to eternal life. And someday the bride will wear her wedding shawl when Jesus comes for his long anticipated wife. Oh, beautiful bride for the Lord wearing radiant white, the marriage of the lamb will be a resplendent sight. Until that day, we live in faith and wait for our precious Lord. 
and seek his face through his wonderful word. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful story about you sending the Holy Spirit to find a bride for your son, the one that we wait for so desperately, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thank you for the pictures that you've given us in the old, which are revealed in Jesus in the new. Thank you for every good and kind blessing which flows from your open hand of grace. Thank you for the opportunity to take communion and to fellowship in the sufferings of Christ and remembering what he did on our behalf, something that none of us could ever do. It's take away the sins of the world because we're already stained by the sins of the world. But you sent your son unsullied by stain to live that life and then give his life up on our behalf. Thank you, God. Thank you for everything you've done for us. Let us remember each day, every moment of the day to just speak to you. In you, we live and move and have our being and we can speak to you as our father. Help us to remember that and to just put all of our trust and all of our faith and all of our hope in you alone. And we pray this in the exalted and glorious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.